welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I'm Tim. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting so that you can improve the quality of your work and home life. In this episode, we caught up with one of our old pals, Linnea Gandhi. She's been busy getting her PhD at Wharton, starting a business in the middle of the pandemic, and playing an integral role in the writing of a book that is certain to become one of the best behavioral science books of the decade. Just, just this decade? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean the, the book you're referring to is Danny Kahneman, Cass Sunstein, and Olivier Siboney's book, Noise. And it may very well turn heads of researchers and practitioners for decades to come. It's an important book for everyone involved in researching and applying behavioral science. No, that's that's very, very true, Tim. And it's very cool that Lania's role in being the linchpin between all of the authors and helping steer the projects to success got her listed as the very first person in the acknowledgments of the book. But more importantly, she's creating some fantastic new courses that we wanted to talk to her about, some of them based on the concepts outlined in noise and the insights found in it. We also talk with her about the way statistics are an expression of the data, and that's a concept that we should all give a little more thought to. We need the math in order to do statistics, but the real value is in the communication of what the numbers mean, and that, my friend, is statistics. Amen to that. Now, the conversation also found its way into a discussion about how patterns are easy to spot, but randomness... Well, randomness is not something that we humans are very good at noticing. She cited the fact that many academic papers point to findings with very small effects, and that means there's a lot of randomness. Not a lot of patterns in behavioral science research, apparently. Our conversation was filled with cool ideas that will hopefully get you thinking differently about looking at the report that says the average employee engagement score is 3.9 and maybe cause you to ask about the distribution and the width of the standard deviation on that score. Again, Linnea has told us about her crush on statistics, and I have to say, I'm starting to see the reason that crush exists. <laughs> well, I can't wait to hear stories from marketing managers about how surprised their analytics teams are when they pose these crazy questions that we've got for them. But in the meantime, we encourage you to sit back with a statistically meaningful draft of your favorite malted beverage and enjoy our conversation with Linnea Gandhi. Linnea Gandhi, welcome to Behavioral Grooves again. Thank you, Tim. It's lovely to be here. We are so happy to see you. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and get your insights. And we're going to start with the speed round because that's what we do. So would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite musician, athlete, or researcher? A researcher. Oh, that was a quick one. We like that. All right. And do we get a flavor of who that might be? Oh, probably Danny. <laughs> <laughs> but haven't you had dinner with Danny? I'll do more. Okay. <laughs> there you go. He's a very scarce resource. That is yeah. that is very true, and and I could think any time that you get an opportunity to just sit and and learn and be around that kind of brilliance, I think I would take that too. So, all right, this is I, I we think this is an easy question for you, but we don't know. So, statistics or mathematics, which is better? I feel underqualified to answer the question. 
Um, <laughs> but I, I guess statistics. Uh, but you need math for statistics. No, that's, that, that's a good point. That's a good so, point. Just last time you were crushing on statistics. So I am, kind I am of, crushing uh, on statistics. Yeah. So okay. I, it's, it's an, I like statistics because it's actually, for me, it's more useful. Mm. The math behind it, I absolutely need. For sh- like, I can't do it without, without mathematics, but statistics is a communication form. And so it's something I'm going to use a lot more and make better decisions with than the math. I'm just going to assume the math works because I'm not smart enough to be the one doing the math behind the statistics. So uh, I know this is supposed to be a speed round question, but I, I want to dig into that. You said statistics is a communication form. What? So help us. What do you mean by that? Again, out of my bailiwick, I think. But <laughs> I, I love this book by um, Robert Abelson called Statistics as Principled Argument. I may have promoted this three years ago. I am so in love with the book. But the way that he talks about statistics is you're just you're using this to express the data. Mm. Statistics is is just your ability to make an argument about what the data represent about the world. Mm. It's it's a way of articulating an inference, whether it's a prediction or an explanation or description. It's highly useful obviously can be abused, but it's, it's highly useful and, and I guess un- underappreciated. Whereas math, people think, oh, it's fancy, it's important, which I, I, it is, but it's not a communication tool. It's not a way for us to talk about our understanding of the world. All right. No, th- thank you for that. And Tim, I think we're going to have to rename our speed round because it never seems to be a speed no, round anymore. Never, yeah, exactly. But now I, I, going into the next speed round question, I'm, oh, all right. Should dogs wear sunglasses and leather jackets or just be naked in their videos? Oh, I mean, you already know the answer to that. Uh, there's a reason it was Barolo, my smaller dog, in the jacket. Um, uh-huh. He's much more compliant. My other dog is in a few other videos, and she looks pissed off. <laughs> oh, <laughs> really? down, she's like, mm, you know, um, yeah, so I think it probably depends on the dog, I would say. Okay. My smaller dog is dumber and cuter and just happy to be here. <laughs> so he can be dressed up. <laughs> Not was... the smarter dog. <laughs> so just just to, to give some background for, for the listeners, and we'll talk about these courses that are coming up. Linnea is doing some really cool courses and their video based and there was she has part of her dog in some of the intros and different pieces of them and they are by the far whole dog. the whole dog it's not, part <laughs> it's of not dog. pieces the of dog. the dog <laughs> and they are very cute and there is the the sunglasses and the leather jacket i just had to smile at when i saw it so all right last speed round question we're, we're getting through this in record time <laughs> is life lived by averages or by individuals also a cheat question. Life is lived <laughs> by individuals, not averages. And yet in research, too often we study averages, not individuals. Yes. And that was one of the pieces that you you talk about in this new, in this course uh, that you are, are developing. So can you just give us a, a big overview of these courses, what they're about and, and what the vision is for them? I would love to, Kurt. Thanks for that. <laughs> Thanks for that very nice setup. The course that we are just wrapping up right now, it's our first course, is on noise, which is a statistical concept in contrast to bias. We talk about bias all the time. Bias is just a statistical shift or systematic shift, excuse me, from the mean. So if you're shooting at a target, all your errors are going to the left. 
or they're all going down. It's, it's a systematic error that's consistent, just so to speak. Noise is the scatter. Noise is the heterogeneity. Noise is the variability in the world. And it's far understudied and it's, it's far undernoticed because it doesn't come naturally for us to notice it in the world. And so it's a really important topic. There is, as your listeners might know, a book coming out on it right now by Daniel Kahneman, Cass Sunstein, and Olivier Siboney. It's a fantastic book, and I had the pleasure and honor of apprenticing and working on it for the last three years. So we thought, you know, this is a really long book. It's got a lot of great content, and uh, how can we teach it to people in complement to the book? Because for the last few years, I've been teaching it in my class as well, my MBA students, executives, professionals, and it's not an easy topic to get on board with. And so we thought, hey, if we're figuring out ways in the classroom to boil this down, to supplement the book material, we should try to put this online to democratize that knowledge for everybody. Yeah. The concept is, I mean, the, the, the book is wonderful, but it is, it's a big book filled with lots and lots of really detailed information. And so really think that Obviously, the, the, the course is probably going to be very valuable for, for many, many people. So with that, can you tell us how is the course structured? Is it a master class style? What, how, how are people, if they were going to come in and say, yes, I want to take this course, what, what, what should they expect? This course is designed for busy professionals, people who don't have a lot of time in their day. It was really important for me to design it such that every chunk, every video within the course was less than 10 minutes. And for even the first half of it, I got them closer to five minutes. People don't have much time. So it's, I want to get one idea as quickly as possible in a salient, vivid, fun way. And so you can think of this kind of like edutainment. My, my producer, my head of products, the woman really behind the scenes uh, making this course, Yumi Perkins, she likes to call it, we're trying to compete against Netflix. <laughs> so wow. uh, we're not wow. comedians, you know, by training, but we really try to make it funny, fun. That's why we put dogs in it. I tell lots of stories about me being noisy and biased to try and make it relatable for people. There is some research, of course, scattered throughout, but we're really here to make it interactive, fun, relatable, so that you have this core foundation and you feel empowered to actually do something with the knowledge. And there's a funny story about actually the production of this course on noise because you had to deal with oh, something you want to yes. tell? <laughs> we were just talking about this. Yes. Yeah, so we, because we taped this during the COVID pandemic, we started taping it in my apartment where we had set up a nice background and we finished just this week actually, but I, I live in New York right now on a very busy street. And so ironically, and, and in, unfortunately not anticipated, we had to stop every few minutes, sometimes even after 20 seconds, because there'd be a car horn or someone braking or truck backing up or sirens. I live in between two hospitals. So <laughs> our poor um, production, uh, head of production, uh, Yumi and, uh, and her colleague, Sophie, just kept stopping me and stopping me. And they're very patient and they're cutting the video right now. So ironically, <laughs> as we were trying to teach about noise, we were also trying to manage noise physically in our environment. Oh my gosh. Okay. So tell us, uh, you said the first course is on noise, mm -hmm. uh, less than 10 minutes. Is, is, is the whole book going to be condensed into a single 10 minute? Yeah. So tell us, uh, tell us about the, the format and what, and what to expect. I'm glad you asked that, Tim. I really I am because this was something I spent a lot of time thinking about. I wanted to build this course last September. Right When I read the final, well, quasi-final manuscript, did a whole edit through, and then the authors took it 
to the end to go to the publisher in December. I, I didn't want to repeat the book. I, people need to buy the book. They need to read the book. It's an awesome book. I, I'm not trying to compete against Annie, nor could I ever do so. But it's, it's a hard book. And it took me a long time to develop course material, complementing it, that helped students learn it. So I decided that I would not copy what was in the book except for some core concepts. And I, I try to simplify concepts down and I make my own frameworks. So you'll see with running a noise audit, when I teach people how they can actually measure noise in their environment, I've invented a framework called the four P's. Mm. Process, examples, <laughs> people, <laughs> and pre-commitment. You won't find that in the book. You'll find some content, obviously, around noise audits that's helpful, but I'm trying to boil it down into things that are easy for people to implement right now. And I, I did that intentionally. I didn't even reread the manuscript in December because I wanted to keep myself independent. How would how would Linnea teach this course with people in front of her? Not how do I cut and paste the book into videos? I want to mm. really make it a, a complementary primer on the topic and something that's empowering people alongside the book. I think that's a fantastic piece because as you said, it's a great book. People go out, buy the book. It's fantastic. We, we actually interviewed Olivier and he'll be on, he was actually the show right before this. But I love the idea of, of simplifying it, making it actionable for people. Um, what was the hardest part of that for you? And in, in obviously, there's a lot of content. You've been working on this in this arena for a long time. You co-wrote HBR article with Danny on noise back in, what, 2016? Mm -hmm. Is it long that long ago? ago? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You've been thinking so, about it for a while. You've been thinking about it for a while. So there's a, a it's a huge area, as you said, and it's been understudied. So how do you take the key concepts of that and boil it down into 20, what, 20 videos that you're you're doing on this? I mean, that 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 curation part, I think, had to be pretty difficult. But were there other difficult parts with this? The other difficult part is that noise isn't intuitive. Mm. Bias is. I can go around and point to patterns I see in the world where people are getting things wrong all over. I might be wrong. But we see patterns everywhere. It's the way that our minds are programmed. Pattern recognition. That's how we have survived for so many thousands of years. That means we don't see randomness. That means we don't appreciate randomness. Uh, and so how do you create that for students, particularly in an electronic asynchronous environment, when it's not a natural thing? And this is something that the authors struggled with. As someone's reading the book, how can we get them to simulate and understand noise in the way that in Thinking Fast and Slow, Danny wrote all those great thought experiments. And so the m most time I spent was, how do I get people to experience this right now through the video, you know, where I can't even be with them? When I'm with students in the classroom, I usually do a chocolate taste test where I give them three different pieces of dark chocolate on their desk. And I ask them to taste it independently and tell me what percent cacao they think each piece is. So how dark is it? And then we look at the data and we debrief. And it's this fantastic way of demonstrating variability in what people pay attention to. So I asked them, like, how did you make your determination? And some people mentioned the smoothness of the chocolate. Some people mentioned how bitter it was. Um, others people look at the color. And different people are looking at different cues. That's noise in selection, noise in what we pay attention to. Then I have them uh, tell me, you know, how did you get to the actual number? And we talk about you know, some people are actually familiar with cacao levels because they have lots of dark chocolate at home. Some people are like, I don't, I don't know what that is. 20% cacao, right? Which is a ridiculous number. Um, and so we talk about noise and translation, how you 
translate your impression of dark chocolate to a scale. And in the middle, we talk about noise and integration as well. How do you combine smoothness with color with, you know, so noise and selection, integration and translation can easily be demonstrated when I can give you a stimulus with lots of people and then talk about where the sources of variability are. Really hard to do when you can't talk to somebody live. And so we invented several exercises that I hope, I hope get to that. I wish I could send all my students chocolate though. That would be more fun. <laughs> I would like chocolate. You, you know, that, I, I like, I'm a good chocolate guy. There you go. And your birthday's <laughs> coming up. So we should, we should be thinking about there chocolate as, associated with your birthday. <laughs> well, you know, Lania, this is, um, you point out a really great uh, and important aspect of why we don't see randomness, why it's easy to see a bias because it's, there's something that's more identifiable about it. Why do you think it is that, that humans are not so attuned to randomness and, and to noise? Well, I'm not a cognitive psychologist that studies it, although I think there's a great one out there, Tanya Lombroso, who studies explanations. Our attention is drawn to patterns. It's, it's adaptive. It's, it's not adaptive to go around and think that everything is random. You're trying to develop habits, routines, shortcuts so that you can get through the world easier, make better predictions, make better inferences. And so we over-index on finding patterns where they don't exist. My favorite example of this is the Mona Lisa which I think is an example that has been used by Annie Duke and Duncan Watts and others to talk about how randomness can play a role even in history. So if you ask someone why the Mona Lisa is famous, they will immediately pick on patterns. It's her eyes. It's her smile. It's because it was a da Vinci painting. They have these explanations, which is basically what a pattern is. But if you go back in time and you look at the history of the Mona Lisa, it was not actually much more famous than any other painting you know, in the early 20th century. It was only after it was stolen in 1911 that it became famous. And you're nodding. I'm sure you've heard the story. It's certainly yeah. not original. And when you tell people that, you know, of course, that makes sense in hindsight. But how easy was it for our mind to jump to patterns? It's incredibly easy. Or a more, you know, regular example, like a car crashes in the street. Why did that happen? And you try to point to these systematic reasons of, you know, the car driver is just a bad driver. They're worse. You know, what if it's this random thing that was in the road? Or a confluence mm. of factors. It's probably a confluence of factors that we can't see that have some random variability in it. Impossible to appreciate. It's invisible. It's the background where bias is the foreground. Yeah. Well, it's it's the idea of seeing shapes and images in clouds or in your toast yes. and various different things. We, we look for those and our brain just automatically recognizes that. And again, it's an evolutionary process yes. as you, you talked about. So I think this- We should not get rid of it. It gives no. us a sense of control and confidence and meaning in the world. By no means am I saying, oh, stop being pattern recognizers. Just appreciate that the pattern may not explain as much as you think. There's yeah. quite a bit more variability in the world. And this is true for academic research. If you actually look at the effect sizes in much of the behavioral science research, they're small, which means there's a lot of variability. That's often the case. It's because the standard deviation is wide, but we don't appreciate that. We just hook on to that up. Oh, there's a bias, there's a statistically significant effect, right, for a frequentist. But we so underappreciate the amount of heterogeneity in that data. We just move yeah. on. We say, okay, this is a bias, it's everywhere then. Well, no, not really, and not for everyone, <laughs> into different amounts. And But that's not satisfying. That that makes us feel like, gosh, I can't explain the world as much as I thought I could, which means I can't predict as much as what I thought I could, which means I can't control as much as I thought I could, which makes me <laughs> depressed. And then, you know, we devolve and don't do anything. So it's it's adaptive but it can backfire. 
All right. So, Linnea, you you mentioned that you've been working with Danny and Cass and um, Olivier. Olivier, my gosh, we just interviewed Olivier. And, <laughs> and so tell us, what was it like working with those guys? Because you worked pretty, pretty closely with them I, from what we understand on doing this book. What are some of the back, you know, the, the, the behind the scenes things that we might want to be. Yeah. Give us, give us some, give us a behind the scenes. Some of the juicy details. (laughs) Far less drama than you'd hope. I'm sure. Um, Of course. What's cool is they're all very different. They're very different people. And I didn't in prospect, I didn't think, I didn't even think about how beneficial that would be. To be honest, I was closest with Danny and I, I just wanted to keep working with Danny and was excited about that on noise. But they're each very different. And so they write differently. They think differently. They taught me different things in working with them. So as you all probably know, Danny's a very deep thinker. Yeah. He thinks very hard. Uh, it will take him forever to write a half page of text. And then he'll wake up at 2 a.m. and delete the whole thing. Um, so he, he really wants the idea to be right and its expression to be right and relatable. And so he's very willing to take a very long time to get one idea out there and to kill his darlings in the process. So he's very slow. He's deep and he's slow and he has very, very little ego about his ideas. And then you have someone on the other end of the spectrum with speed, which is Cass, who like writes (laughs) 10 books a year, which is insane. (laughs) Right. Right. And so what's awesome about Cass is he's like, there's, I have an idea. Let's put it out in the world. People should know this. Let's talk about this. We see, we, you know, we, we research some of the data on noise. We see some crazy finding it. It ought to go out there. You know, he has such boldness and, and prolificness, you know, in expressing yes. his ideas fast and in a compelling way so that they go and change the world. Um, and that is something that was great for me because I get very nervous about putting ideas in the world, including this course. <laughs> uh, and then Olivier um, is, is such a cogent thinker. He kind of bridges the two of them. He's, I would say he's in the middle in terms of speed. And he's always thinking about how do we apply this? How is this relatable to the professional world? Which, you know, in hindsight makes a ton of sense because he's been in business. So you put those three people together in a room or on a Zoom, as a lot of our meetings were. And, you know, the meetings are not efficient. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, but, you know, as long as you have time on your side, you know what you're going to get out of it is amazing because you really have true diversity of thought, true diversity of style. So if you can pull together and not quit the book, as we almost did like five times, you're going to get really great work product. And I I really appreciate all three of them. It's just been so cool to learn. How did Cass and um, Olivier get brought into the project? Because when you wrote the initial article, it was with what Andrew Rosenfeld and Tom Blazer and Danny Mm -hmm. and you, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. how did, how did those two get brought in? Was it was Danny going out and, and getting them? Were they all just kind of talking about this at different pieces? And they said, hey, let's let's work together on this. What was the impetus? My understanding is that Danny and Olivier have been writing for quite a bit. You know, they've, they've mm. been thought partners for many years now. I think they have another HBR article together with Dan Lavallo. So they already were in contact. And, you know, when we finished that article and it went out in HBR in 2016, we were all convinced people would be obsessed with noise. it was just that it was just the the tip of the iceberg cue the crickets like it was nothing right like i will say you know some academics have certainly picked it up um bo cowgill i know has been doing research on it and others but it really didn't didn't pick up a ton uh so that was underwhelming but danny just stayed really fascinated by the topic 
talked with Olivier a lot about it. And it turned into them trying to write not quite a book, but more about it, do more research on it. And then I think at some point they just decided they would write a book. And that's when I got more formally involved because Danny said, we need a clone of you to work on this with us full time. And I was like, oh, but can I raise my hand? Wait, does it have to be a clone of me? Um, I would love to do it. And so that was awesome. And so I remember meeting with him and Olivier in New York 2018, like January, February, to start seeing what they've already been writing, start getting organized. Because I was going to manage all the research processes and hire and manage RAs, do all the editing, like basically project manage as well as, you know, edit and, and learn from them. And so I'm there trying to bring it all together. And Cass was in town. And so he stopped by, we were at Brockman studio, their publisher. He stopped by and talked with Olivier, Danny and me about the topic. I was taking notes. Cass was getting so excited by it because he hadn't really been thinking about this before. And he's got such rich experience in policy. He's like, I have all these examples from government and from law. This is everywhere. This is, this is, we have to write about this now. This is (laughs) what you're doing is amazing. And then, you know, he eventually left because he had to make another appointment. And Olivier and Danny were amazed. They said that that was so helpful. Cass is full of all these rich examples that we have to use in the book because it will really help this relatively hidden, hard to see concept come to life. And he's so good of a writer and he's so smart and you know he's a friend. And so just like an hour or two later, they wrote an email to him asking if he would be a co-author. Wow, wow. And I think... Cass just called back right away. I mean, it was, it was, he was, he was so excited and they were excited. I think he put his wife, Samantha on the phone. Like everyone was just really happy. And so (laughs) I don't, they didn't intend to my knowledge from what I was witnessing. It was never like, Oh, this is exactly the three people who should be writing this book together. It happened so organically because of the chemistry that transpired in that meeting. Well, and it sounds like how you describe Cass, that that would be the perfect way to get him involved anyway. You like you get him excited and then say, oh, come join us. And then he's like, yes, let's do that. I mean, he so. wrote like a tome by email with more examples <laughs> that afternoon. He is, I mean, wow. I just, I don't know how he does it. It's, it's, um, it's really, it's really awesome to see and to juxtapose that with Danny Olivier Styles. It, it makes it really hard to pull together a book with a consistent voice, but um, it, and, and to go through the process in a way that's not painful and inefficient, but it results in great work product. Yeah, Cass is absolutely the Stephen King of academic writers. Oh my God, yeah, he's just Im- amazing. Imagine with Danny just deleting everything and Cass just making everything, <laughs> you know, and then Olivier holding the two together like glue. Wow. Pretty fun. That is fun. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about your PhD. You're in a PhD program at Wharton. Uh, tell us about first of all why get your PhD because you have been a practitioner in uh, the world of behavioral science for some time. Why and get teaching. the PhD? And you've been teaching. You've been the teaching stuff as well. <laughs> why get the PhD? And tell us about what your what your PhD is about. Well, I I really had what I'll call a Danny moment. Uh, if, if, what was it in 20, when did I apply? I'm, I'm in 2019 in the fall. I've been saying, as you know, for years, don't get a PhD. You don't need it to do this applied work. Just be thoughtful and critical. And well, if anything I've learned from Danny is, um, kill your darlings, have no (laughs) cost about your own ideas and conceptions about the world, right? Have strong ideas, but hold them lightly. Whoever said that. Uh, and so I, I totally flipped. It was actually working with, on the book with Danny in September, October of 2019. So the deadline to apply was coming up. 
and we were co-locating in New York for a week. Um, this is pre-COVID at the time to work on it. And over lunch, um, we were working on some part of the book and he just looks at me and goes, you need to get a PhD. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, he says, you, he says, you either need to build the equivalent of McKinsey for behavioral science or you need to get a PhD and be you know, more legitimately a scholar and an academic. You, you won't be happy otherwise. Now, I mean, I don't know if he's right, with that simplification, <laughs> but I definitely don't want to build a McKinsey. Uh, I, I really then thought about it after that and, you know, working with him and especially him, and obviously Cass and, and Olivier as well, but because he's such a deep thinker, he teaches you how to think. Mm. Uh, he teaches you how to be critical. When you start thinking that way, you can't but help want to be an academic because no one else will pay you to do that. <laughs> and, you know, if I did that with a client, I'd be fired. Right? Like I would get nothing yeah. done. Um, so yeah, I thought, I thought more seriously about it. And really my, my current long-term vision, which is uh, st- strongly believed, but loosely held. I really wish I remember that quote um, uh, is I think like, I-, I really think the worlds of academia and business or academia and industry and policy, they got to merge more. It can't mm. be these one-off projects here and there. It absolutely can't just be, you know, people like me or my colleagues, like reading a paper and trying to apply it. We've got to do research in a more integrated way. Social science has got to be more useful and solution oriented. I'm a Duncan Watts acolyte in that sense. Um, and, you know, industry has to be more science driven. We have to try to figure out how to flip the incentives in companies and organizations for long term evidence based impact. Uh, and so I, I think the only way to achieve that or to be part of the solution and not just complaining about the problem is for me to strongly have a foot in both worlds mm. um, and really try to bridge these gaps in the way that the Katie Melquins of the world, the Angela Duckworths of the world, the Duncan Watts of the world are doing. Hence why I'm at Wharton. <laughs> I was going to say, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, and Barb Mellers and Phil Tetlock with Super Forecasting, right? These are all highly yeah. solution-oriented research projects and you know, being able to be in both worlds, I think will help me be part of the solution in merging them. Yeah. So w- what are you studying? What What is your dissertation going to be on? Do you have a, a, have a you hypothesis at this point? Have you interviewed a PhD before? <laughs> I have a PhD. <laughs> I, I, I fully how understand how crazy <laughs> it is. It is. We, well, actually, we're, we're recording a, a, a series we call the New Voices series. We've been talking oh. to PhD students uh, from around the world to get a feel for Mostly, where are they headed? What, like, where's their head at in terms of what they think is important? And of course, they most of them come back and say, "Well, I, I'm just basically taking up whatever my advisor will let me do." You know, I mean, really? that, yeah. There's there's that, a lot of that. That is no. not all of that. There it's is not all some of that. that is, and and I think people pick their their colleges and their and their mentors partly because they're interested in right. that oh, sure. that type of research. So it isn't. You're painting a dire picture there, Tim. Okay. It's not that bad. Forgive me. <laughs> well, it's not that way with my experience in the operations information and decisions group at Wharton. Also something that attracted me. You know, you you this program is a department-based program. So there's no one saying you have to work just with Angela or just with Joe or, ju- you know. Oh, I bounce around. I have projects spanning across Barb Mellers, who's technically in marketing and psychology. Uh, one with Angela Duckworth and Danny, who's not even at Wharton. One with Katie Melkman and Angela, that kind of also is pulling in Duncan when I can, but he's a hot commodity. 
And then another one that I'm doing with Duncan's uh, lab. And another one, I'm totally right, Marie Schweitzer, who's in management. Um, so, <laughs> or he's, he's a management scholar in OID. And so I've been able to, in a lovely, lovely way, sample the styles and the interests of all these brilliant minds. And they've been so, um, I don't say hands-off in a way, but I've been able to study what I want. They're, oh, mostly what I want to study is dumb. I will tell you that I discovered along the way that I picked a bad problem or a bad design because I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but they're, you know, letting me either they're letting me flounder to find my feet or they're giving me too much rope and I'm going to hang myself soon. But it's, oh, it's been awesome. It's really it's, you know, the enough and autonomy and support and mentorship in that program has been uh, beyond what I expected. So what Fantastic. is it? What, what, is, is there a confluence of, of all <laughs> these rivers coming together? Uh, yes, I, I hope so. I had to I had to write some grant proposals this semester and that helped me sit down and say, how does this all fit together? So a, a lot of it is around improving the way that social science is done. Mm. It's kind of the, the, the judgment and decision-making of judgment and decision-making. A meta, a meta approach. Look at that. Yes. I want to be as navel gazing as possible. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like, it's like navel gazing squared. Um, (laughs) But I, so because I, because I I really, my bet is uh, that in 10 years, we are going to have this integrated world where social science researchers are more embedded inside organizations and vice versa. I actually think this is where, you know, doing this sort of research is going to be helpful. So I'm really interested in the concept of explanation and prediction and how our need to explain undermines our ability to predict. I love that. Which is this kind of like bias and noise. If I'm looking for all these biases, I'm going to build a model with super significant coefficients, but the R squared on that model is like crap. Mm, I can't actually Mm. predict Kurt's behavior and Tim's behavior. And so same thing goes when we start looking at the recent research that's been done in the past five years by Stefano Delavinia and Devin Pope. Um, and others on prediction. So can we predict the results of social science research? Can we predict the results of replications in social science? And when you have lay people do it and practitioners do it and researchers do it, you know, sometimes the predictions are okay when you take the average. Often they're not very good. And what we've been trying to do, most studies have been trying to measure that predictive validity um, and then change the way predictions are elicited to boost it. I'm interested in understanding the mental model people have when making the prediction in the first place. And my hunch, although I'm still figuring out the best ways to study it, is that the the coefficients we're waiting on in our mental model of what will work are just absolutely not the coefficients that are in the model of efficacy. Meaning, you know, if I had to look at a set of, of um, nudges in the world of behavioral interventions, and I say, which ones do I think I'm going to work? What I'm picking, why I'm picking it, maybe I'm picking something because it's novel and interesting and like the sweet spot of just surprising enough, but actually what works is like the boring stuff, Mm -hmm. Uh, like defaults, like this really bland reminder, Um, you know? And so if you think of like all the the variables uh, that could featureize these nudges, you know, the length, the wording, the whatever, and is my mind when I'm trying to predict what works picking on features that really don't have anything to do with what actually works. And am I doing it in a way that like, no matter what nudges you give me, I'm picking the stuff that sounds interesting. I'm picking the stuff that develops this beautiful explanation of my mind, 
but has very low predictive validity. And why I am passionate about this is that all those years I spent consulting, I'm like half the time people don't run experiments. And so they're basing it on my judgment, my colleague's judgment, another vendor's judgment. And like, if we are systematically off, I want to know. And I'm going to know what it is so I can avoid those features and say, don't get swayed by the sexiness of the concept. Don't get swayed by the length of the message or whatnot. So this sounds similar to, so one of the things we, when we interviewed Olivier uh, that we found fascinating was the whole concept and actually as part of the book too, was decision hygiene, right? Yes. And, and this idea of decision hygiene and making, looking at how we make decisions and just inoculating ourselves in, in mm -hmm. a certain way against the some of the negative aspects that are out there. It sounds a little bit like what you're talking about, right? You're, you're looking at the, the way that we make those decisions. And one of the things that, that Olivier talked about was this open mindset and bringing in and this idea that we want to always be looking for things that may uh, be contrary to what we, our beliefs that we hold or the ideas that we have. So always looking for that contrary information. And that's a really hard thing, but is, is, is there a similarity there? And then what are your favorite decision hygiene pieces oh. from noise? <laughs> I know you're going to have a whole course that you're going to have to do on this, but we just want one little tidbit. <laughs> okay. Well, it is similar to decision hygiene. Like that's where I'm going, but I'm first have to understand what's actually going on in our minds and whether yeah. like I have this beautiful explanation that I think will be predictive. <laughs> I need to predict first. <laughs> I need to be able to have my models work out of sample before I can, you know, actually then design a solution to remediate those issues. So uh, it is related. I'm, I'm obsessed with decision-making. And in fact, I think organizations underinvest in it. Even my own organization, we did. And a lot of what we've done this past year is institute decision hygiene in the way that we run recruiting, in the way that we decide what projects to go go with, because it's so easy to index on using behavioral science ideas for your customers, for your product, for for something outside of yourself, because it's clearly tied to revenue or cost. You, you forget to do it on your own decisions. So I am obsessed with that. It is something that I'm trying to study for sure in academia, although it's you know a little bit more abstracted at times. But yeah, decision hygiene is an awesome concept. And I, I love how it came up during the book project. I like to contrast it actually with an, I actually, I've been thinking about it as a little bit different from inoculation. Okay. I think debiasing training is like inoculation. I'm going to have you sit down for two hours and learn about biases. You are now inoculated for the next three months from committing <laughs> those biased errors. Right? <laughs> it's a ridiculous idea. You're human. Right? We have to change your environment. We have to change the process you're going through. We have to be there in the moment of action of the decision. That's decision hygiene. It's washing your hands. It's putting hand sanitizer on the door. It's making the mask you know, available and clear to you. It's, you don't have to know what you're fighting against. You just know you're killing off a lot of germs or error. So I, I love the concept of decision hygiene and that you're right. It is the next course that we're building. You asked about the favorite one, though. My favorite one and is I know it's hard. Right. No, no. What? My favorite one is boring. Independence. Good. Independence. It's so easy to do. It's so easy to introduce independence in your decisions as a group or even for yourself. All right. Explain independence for our listeners. So independence is Kurt makes the decision or the judgment. Tim makes the judgment and I make the judgment without talking to each other. We independently make the judgment and then we talk about it or we average it or whatnot. It's such an easy thing to introduce into your process. And whenever you're in a group meeting 
or making a decision by email. I remember actually um, last year, I was helping a client make a decision on just another vendor to hire. They just wanted um, some thoughts and they they emailed me and the other people who had been on the call on the client side. And they made this nice little matrix of attributes even saying, score the vendor on this attributes. And they said, and just email it back to the group. Mm. Just reply all. And I was like, no. I'll reply all. That's my one little suggestion. <laughs> because as soon as I see what Kurt says, even if I don't want to be influenced by it, I might be, or Tim, or maybe I realize, you know, Kurt's my boss. And so, or Kurt brought up a good point. Maybe I should consider that. Now I'm no longer collecting independent, diverse opinions. I'm being, I'm contaminating it. And it's, it's just so easy to introduce. That's why I like this one the best. And it can have a huge impact. If you ever want to have a wise crowd, you need independence. Yeah. Like part of the Condorcet theorem requires independence. And it's shocking to me how little we do it in life. In our last time we talked with you, you talked about grading 180 papers and the ability to do that. And, and it was you, you talked about the independence of the different TAs and actually then looking at the, you know, trying to look at each scale piece independently. And then also I love the part of, of like, hey, don't do this sequentially. Try to put some time in between because you're going to have a, you know, that that component of, hey, the other, the, the, what I just read before will, will judge what goes on here, which is similar to what you're saying here. It's like that the opinions of somebody else may impact or and not may, they will impact me regardless of, of how I, if I like them or don't like them, it will have some impact on me. So very cool. 100%. You. You've been through a lot and we've all been through a lot in the last year. Right. A pandemic, the effort that you put into the book, you know, getting deep into a PhD program. What's your music listening like these days? <laughs> I knew you were going to get there eventually. <laughs> um, I was waiting for this yeah. really in-depth question <laughs> after That's that. Pretty in-depth. That's and I, pretty and then I realized, oh, no, he's going to music. All right. There you go. I, I wish I was more savvy with music choices. I'm not. I'm a Macklemore girl. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Which I've been told by my my team is not cool. <laughs> well, <laughs> give me some thrift shop. I mean, yeah. I pump up music before a talk. I, I really like it's fun. It's whimsical. It embodies the tone that like I want to have in life. You know, I'm talking about deep topics that are serious and studying them, but I'm doing it with a wink. I'm making it easy to consume and and shed light on it. I think Macklemore has been really good about doing that in, in his music. I don't I don't know him deeply, of course, but it, they're, they're like the songs. Yeah, that's fantastic. Have you listened to any music while you've been doing any of this work? Like, do you have music going on all the time or is it just like, I'm okay, I'm going to wind down or I'm going to work out or I'm going to do something and music's going to be that my theme song? Oh, you're going to hate my answer. When I'm working on deep work and creative work, I often listen to white noise. Mm. Wow, that's great. I think that's a great answer. It's very actually. boring. Tim can't listen. Yeah. He says, uh, you know, he, he he can't listen to music at all if he's trying to work. It, it, oh. This is too distracting. It doesn't matter if it's smooth yeah. jazz or classical or things with words. Whereas me, I can listen. I, I guess I'm not that deep. So, <laughs> <laughs> Linnea Gandhi, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. It's good to see you again. And thank you for, for being a guest on Behavior Groups again. Thank you both so much. Always a pleasure. Welcome to the Grooving Session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Linnea, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our noiseless brains. Oh, wouldn't that be fantastic to have a noiseless brain? Noiseless brain, man. Take all that noise out, get rid of it, and it's just quiet.
can't even in the background right now there's like garbage <laughs> trucks and there's literally noise outside of my window right now so, oh man and i uh, think i think what what is really cool is that the book noise is a fantastic book yeah. but it is it is in depth it is a it's a, a read that you need to really sit down and think through and underline, I mean, man, the number of underlines that I had and highlights in there are just amazing. And what Linnea is able to do uh, is to take the concepts out of there and apply them and put them in a manner that a, a, a busy person can be able to take, right. learn from and apply. And we got to see a preview of the courses that she's doing. It is fantastic from what we could see. It's just going to be, I, I'm looking forward to it because my God, I, I definitely need a refresher because I read that book and I can't remember Yeah, well, a 10th of it. Dense is the word that comes to my mind. Very. Well, I am dense. I understand <laughs> no, that. No, I, not I describing it takes you. me a while. No. It takes me a while to have things sink in, which is why I need Linnea's course because it's going to help me be less dense. It's going to help me too. No, I'm talking about the book is dense. <laughs> There's a high level of density. <laughs> no, the book is smart. The book is really, really smart. I don't, I, I, am, yeah. I, am I being dense here? Am I not catching something? I don't. The I don't idea know. that, I, I think she said that, that none of the courses are going to be more than 10 minutes long. That's, yeah. that's like, man, she's really focused on a, on a busy lifestyle. And I think that that, that's fantastic. So yeah. So, so Kurt, where did you want to start our, our grooving session? I just, you know, Lenny has been crushing on statistics for a long time. And I love this comment that she said that basically is saying that, look, statistics is a form of communication. This idea that it's a way of, of talking about data. And, and as she said, it's just your ability to make an argument about what the data represents and about the world. Oh, yeah. It's a way of articulating an inference, whether it's a prediction or an explanation or a description. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. She's getting me, a, she's converting me into this statistics convert. I, I want to go out and read statistic books now, even though uh, I'm too dense to understand them. So hasn't gotten my interest up quite that much. <laughs> I'm I'm also concerned that we're going to hear from mathematicians and people like that. And they're going to say, no, it's all about the math. I think, I think that Linnea makes a compelling argument that math is not a communication tool, but it helps reveal what the, what the communication tool is. And that is the statistical representations of the data. I think that's just so cool. I also wanted to say about this, because I, I'm particularly excited about it, that we can use the, the statistics to help develop a narrative, right? And, and this is an important thing that uh, we can't just do with math. But when we use statistics, when we talk about averages, or more importantly, we talk about the width of the standard deviation, or we, we talk about the, the noise that's in the system, now we can actually have a narrative. Then, because humans are so good at responding to narratives, this is where we can make better decisions. We can actually make better decisions because of the stats. Yeah. And I think that's really important is this idea of how do you tell the most compelling story, this coherent argument about the world that you have discovered with this data in a way that makes sense for yeah. people. And I think, and, and we've talked about this, I think the, the role of education has really missed the point of 
educating people on statistics. And and we just had a conversation with Richard Nisbet, who again yeah. talked about this in a whole different way. He was talking about this educational component and this idea of saying, we've missed the boat because we're not using everyday experiences and things to teach statistics. This idea that he brought up about, wouldn't it be great to think about baseball stats and how easy that is to comprehend? Right. Uh, thinking about, look, if, if a batter gets up and the very first bat of the season, at the end of that, that batter is either going to have zero batting percentage or a thousand batting percentage. And then you go five so, and this hits is, in. This is for the batter's first time at bat. Right. First time at bat. Yeah. All right. So yeah. if he hits, if he gets a hit, all right, that's a thousand. If, it's a thousand. A, if he if he if he strikes out or gets out, it's it's zero. But that's not going to be that batter's batting average over the course of a season. Even right. you could look, you know, it's it's not unheard of for a batter to get three straight hits or four straight hits. All right, still batting a thousand, but is that still gonna be there? And then if you take that and you go, all right eight hits out and he hits four hits and not four hits, he's batting 500. Uh, so all of this is just yeah. a way of saying, look, this is this is averages and you can look at averages and what averages, uh, how disparate they are between you know small sample sizes and large sample sizes. Right. So the law of large numbers, right. which is a part of statistics and all this. So anyway, I'm sorry, I, I went off on no. one of my diatribes. Well, well, what's so important is that when we are more familiar with statistics and someone says, well, this batter, this particular baseball player has a, has a, a thousand batting average. He's batting a thousand. Like, well, how many at bats has he had? Yeah. Oh, he's only had one. Well, well, yeah. Then <laughs> we might question, we're not questioning the data, but we might question the validity of the narrative that goes along with it because we know a little something about statistics. And we know that uh, you can then start going into about standard deviations and what that means. And so if the average, you know, National League batter averages, you know, 250 and there's a standard deviation, you know, that's one of those concepts that I think not everybody gets. What does a standard deviation mean? But you could use baseball as that going, look, a standard deviation on this is point. I don't know what it is, right? Yeah. But whatever that is. So you're going, oh, so Mickey Mantle, who hit 350 or whatever he hit, you know, that's that's significant that that and he was three standard deviations away. I'm making up the standard number of standard deviations and the average on the batting. So don't don't quote me on that, folks. But the concept of being able to to teach statistics using these everyday concepts, I think, is probably makes it more realistic and people are going to be able to understand it and apply it better. And I think that's uh, some of what Linnea is doing in maybe some of these these training sessions as well as kind of pushing that maybe not to that degree, but helping people understand how that works. I, I would agree. Yeah, very, very much. And yeah. and she talks about, you know, how do you reduce noise and all those other fun things? So close, close the window. That's that's the <laughs> message I got. I also wanted to talk about we don't see randomness, but we see patterns, right? Oh my God. That humans yeah. have evolved to very successfully identify patterns, right? That, um, you know, we're nice, angry, we, we see the emotions, we see, we, we look for patterns on a, on a person's face and we go, oh, that's a, that's a happy emotion. That's a sad emotion. That's an angry emotion. Well, and it helped us survive, right? Because yeah. if I know that if I do X and you get pissed off at it and you, uh, you know, 
I, I am putting myself in danger every time I do X because X leads to Y, which is a pattern. And if I do Z and that makes you smile and happy, well, that's another. So the, it's the weird. We look for those patterns because they've helped us survive in our evolutionary path. And so yeah. we find those all over the place. Absolutely. And we need them, right? We even take it so far as to see faces in clouds when... What? Uh, but but we, interestingly enough, we don't see clouds in faces, right? No, yeah. we don't. Yeah. No. What is that called? Periodolia? Yeah, periodola. Periodolio. Yeah, peridolio. Peridolio. There we go. Th- I think it's really key as we think about this as just this overarching concept of noise and the the idea that noise is the variability that happens and there isn't a nice pattern to it. So it goes unnoticed within most people's lives, right? There's, There's this element that it is the silent, even though it's called noise, right? The silent aspect that is impacting us. And it's just a, it's an interesting piece that if it was, if we were able to see patterns in it, then we would have noticed it much more, which is what happened with heuristics and biases is there's patterns, right? That, that gunshot, that uh, target that you're aiming at, that is a, look, there's a, there's a pattern here. We can see this pattern, but noise by its very definition is this randomness. And so it's harder to see. Dan Ariely's first book, Predictably Irrational, is about the predictability of these biases and heuristics. And noise is silent because it's it doesn't make any sound to us. It doesn't, it does, it's not present to us because it's not so easily seen. Yeah. I, I was yeah, I was riffing a little bit on the You were trying to get the musical piece of that. Trying like to that. noise. Okay. Um <laughs> It was fun to talk with Linnea about working with uh, Kahneman, Sunstein, and Siboney. I mean, that was just, oh my gosh, you know, like what, what, just the what fact that experience. she, yeah, and she was just really generous to make some very sweet observations about them. We don't need to repeat them here, you know, but I, I thought that that was just very nice of her to do and to offer some sort of personalized testimony to the challenges and the rewards of working with these guys. Well, and three very different personalities and three very different, as she said, writing, you know, Danny taking forever to write a single page and Cass writing a book in that same amount of time that Danny writes one page and, and, and Olivier coming in and saying, well, how do we apply this into real world situations and business and making sure that it's relevant? I thought all of those were just fantastic. And I, I do just have to go back and just again, talk about you know, when we, we talked to Olivier about, you know, Linnea yeah. and just the, the, the love that he brought, he said, you know, uh, as I quote here, so it took someone as miraculously organized, helpful and smart and always positive and in a constantly cheerful, good mood. Yeah. And I can't imagine anyone else can't imagine anyone else on the planet who could have pulled this off, but Linnea did. So she's amazing. And so just take that. And just go, wow. Yeah. Just wow. (laughs) That is totally wow. That is totally wow. So uh, one other comment that she had that just really engaged me a lot was the idea of integrating behavioral science into organizations. Mm. And, And that really tripped my trigger because you and I are very much in the same 
mindset, right? That that it's great that there are companies that are hiring the head, the head of behavioral science or they have a chief behavioral officer. That's fantastic. We're very early in the in the deployment of behavioral science applications. But wouldn't it be great when we get to a future when everybody in marketing and everybody in HR and everybody in, in the innovation team and everybody in accounting, they're all familiar with behavioral science principles and it becomes integrated in the corporate culture in the way that we work with each other as employees and with our customers. I think that'd be fantastic. Well, I think it'll be fantastic. I also think there's, there is this worry that I have that, that we can't do a behavioral science light. This other words that you can't (laughs) just read predictably irrational and, you know, a couple of these books and, and thus, you know everything there is to know about behavioral science. And so I think that these that this integration needs to happen. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you bring in a chief behavioral science officer, but let's embed behavioral science experts into each of these different areas so that the, there's this cross-pollination of UX designers with behavioral science experts with data analysis folks. I don't know what they're called anyway, but bringing all of these different pieces together, bring that behavioral scientist into marketing, bring that that behavioral scientist into HR, into on a leadership team. All of those, I think, are going to be something that needs to happen because there is value in understanding why people do what they do and also knowing that it's so context dependent that any individual organization can't just take these generalized themes and say, oh, this is it. This is how it's going to work. But you're going to have to be able to customize that, have this idiosyncratic component that makes it real for this company, this situation, this moment in this time. So, and with that, I think that wraps up our grooming session, Mr. Tim. What do you say? I say yes. That would that, just so fun to talk to Linnea again, but so great <laughs> to, to hear of, of her tremendous successes. And we hope that the course goes really well for her. Yeah. And so we encourage you to think about how you make decisions, because one of the other things that we talked about Linnea with was decision hygiene. And so think about your decision hygiene and we encourage you to think about how you can improve making your decisions, how you can reduce some of the noise, some of that unwanted variability out there. Take a minute or two. Think about that. Apply some of those to your life. And as always, let us know what you come up with, and we would love to hear from you. And with that, go out and find your group this week. 